0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Whether we're talking about Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, or any Islamic country in that part of the world, can they actually adopt a Western style of democracy as we see it? Or is that even possible? And what about the greater worldview? When we talk about the issue of Islam residing side by side with other worldviews, such as um, the Judeo-Christian worldview... Is it possible? Can true coexistence happen, or is this simply a myth? Well, my next guest, I think, would suggest that this is nothing more than wishful thinking. Robert Stearns is Executive Director of Eagle's Wings, an international relational network of believers, churches, and ministries. He is an author of a new book entitled No, We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. And Robert, thanks for being with us on the program tonight.
2: Well, Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, all the KFAX family out there in San Francisco.
1: You know, I am reminded of a statement that was made back in the 1990s on the heels of the riots that took place in Los Angeles and other parts of the West Coast, that following the, uh, the jury trial of the four cops that were accused in the beating of Rodney King. And after several days of rioting in the streets and there had been loss of life and so forth, Rodney King asked a very poignant question on television. Uh, With teary eyes, he asked, "'Can't we all just get along?' And there seems to be some level of which that sort of sentiment is being repeated today when we see the the kind of violence taking place in the Middle East, when we've seen the attacks on the United States at the hands of those who at least claim to be Muslims uh, since uh, the first initial 93 bombing of the World Trade Center, then of course again in 2001 and ongoing. This big question, when we talk about these two very different worldviews, and I think for the sake of conversation it's fair to, to lump um, uh, Judaism and Christianity together as one worldview at least sharing the same God and then Islam on the other side can't we all just get along?
2: well you know it would it, it, it certainly would be wonderful if we could and I think that those of us in the West who really view religious freedom basic human rights the kind of human rights that are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations we really wish that that was the case but unfortunately, uh, what I believe is happening, Craig, is that we are trying to interpret uh, a Middle Eastern and Eastern mindset through a Western lens. And it just doesn't work because words don't have the same meaning. Uh, and I want to I hasten to say that what we're talking about here, what I talk about in the book, is uh, the radicalized portions of both Islam and secularism. Uh, certainly, there are millions and millions of peaceful Muslims. They just want to raise their families, they're good citizens, etc. But there is a well funded, militant, growing aspect, specifically within radical Islam, um, that is causing a serious global turmoil and unrest. And it's not going to go away. Uh, if anything, it's increasing. And the West has to uh, get its head out of the proverbial sand and begin to really take a look at the realities of what's happening
1: on our watch. All right, but let's talk about this for a minute. For most of us here in the West, specifically the United States, we've had the example of how a pluralistic society operates, and and for the most part, through, I think, the bulk of our history, and while we certainly have had our racial divides, we in America have generally gotten along when it comes to religious matters. We generally kind of, you know, live and let live. We see Protestants getting along pretty well with Roman Catholics and Jews alike, even the the occasional secularist or uh, atheist, uh, maybe mad and Murray O'Hare, notwithstanding, we all generally just kind of agree to disagree and leave each other alone. What is it uniquely about the kind of radical Islam that we're seeing unfold, not only in the East, but beginning to show its tentacles here in the United States, that won't fit into that historically cozy, comfy, uh, at least somewhat tolerant form of pluralism that we've had here in the United States for going on 300 years?
2: Well, because the, the, the examples you gave there, Craig, they all have certain core understandings with them. And that is, uh, you know, in America we have freedom of religion, but we also have freedom to not practice religion. There does not exist in this country a mandate of belief one way or another. When you said earlier in the program, uh, when you were doing the introduction that in Libya in Egypt in different places uh you know we're hopeful to see democracy come forth i think what we confuse uh the issue is as americans is that we think of democracy in its most basic terms of being one person one vote that is not the full essence of democracy the true essence of democracy deals with a separation of powers It deals with protection for minorities within your borders. Uh, It deals with various uh, freedoms that are enshrined within that democratic process. And so what you see with a lot of the countries right now in the pan-Arab world, uh, even as we remove these ruthless dictators, unfortunately, we don't know what's going to rise up in their place. And you have organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, like Al-Qaeda, and many, many others uh, who really want to see Sharia law, uh, an extreme form of uh, Islamic interpretation that doesn't just apply uh, to private religious practice, but applies to every single area of life. Uh, And they want to see Sharia law be made the rule of the land, which would make anyone who is not a Muslim... Uh, something uh, called uh, dimmies. They would be put under the Sharia classification of dhimmitude where they become essentially second-class citizens. And Craig, we don't have to look any farther than the courageous pastor in Iran right now who's been on trial for his life uh, because of his conversion from Islam to Christianity uh, to see the kind of result of Uh, This religious political system that is Islam. We have to, in the West, stop simply saying that Islam is a religion. Islam is not simply a religion. It is also a political, um, governmental worldview, and it's spreading broadly, and we need to wake up to that reality.
1: All right, with all that said, is part of the problem here, as we see some thinking that somehow we're going to see Western-style democracy come to the Middle East, or the ability of (coughs) biblical law, natural law, British common law, Sharia law, all somehow peacefully coexist, that there's, as you suggest, a distorted view of the East by the West and the West by the East? I mean, no doubt we get upset when we say, look, if you watch Western movies and think that... uh, uh, Robert Redford or John Wayne are indicative of what life is like in America, then you obviously have a very distorted view. Same token, are there problems when we take kind of the, the romanticized, I don't know, Lawrence of Arabia or of the Rudolph Valentino's chic view of what life is like in the Middle East?
2: <laughs> well, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, absolutely. And I, I, let, let's just look at it this way, Craig, you know. Uh, several months ago there was all the brouhaha uh, in new york i live in new york regarding the potential of what they called the ground zero mosque and uh, were they going to build a mosque near the ground zero site and I- i'm not going to weigh in on that issue right now but i want to raise the point that you know uh, those who practice the muslim faith build mosques here in america on an ongoing basis as they should be allowed to this is a country That practices freedom of religion. And I'm glad that I live in a country that practices freedom of religion. But here's the point, Craig. Why don't we see that reciprocity extended to the Muslim world? Why don't we see Christians allowed to build churches in the Muslim world? Why do we see in Egypt uh, our Egyptian Coptic brothers and sisters, the Coptic Christians who are being martyred for their faith? Why don't we see them? Uh, able to practice their faith in safety and freedom, Egypt receives the second highest amount—or or did at one time—the second highest amount of foreign aid from this nation uh, of any other nation on the planet. That's our taxpayers' dollars, and we should absolutely insist that if Muslims are going to have freedom of expression, freedom of culture, freedom of worship here in the West, in America, in Canada in Europe, well, then it's time for the Muslim world to open up and express reciprocity and allow for freedom of religion in these other countries.
1: We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation tonight with Robert Stearns, author of No, We Can't Wait, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. When we come back, we'll understand a bit more about these two diametrically opposing worldviews and why the notion of coexistence just doesn't make any sense when we talk about our differing values. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with our special guest in this segment of the program, Robert Stearns. Robert is the author of a new book entitled No We Can't Radical Islam, Militant Secularism and the Myth of Coexistence. Now, again, I think it's it's a difficult point of comparison, Robert, for many Americans, many of us here in, in North America in particular, in that we've seen in countries like the U.S. and Canada the ability of Protestants and Catholics and Jews to generally speaking all get along. Now, truth be told, we serve the same God, Uh, we enjoy and read from the same Holy Scriptures, at least uh, for part of it, Um, and we generally share the same values. What is it uniquely about Islam that sets it apart from the ability of getting along with the three major religions here in America?
2: Well, to understand that fully, you need to go back and understand the beginnings uh, of the Islamic faith uh... you know jesus uh, of course preached the message that we're going to love our enemies uh... and the end of his ministry he gave his life up he became our sacrificial lamb and gave his life up uh... the story of islam is very very different uh... the story of islam under the leadership of its founder muhammad was extraordinary expansion uh, by the sword And so where Jesus led 12 apostles by washing their feet uh, and feeding the multitudes, uh, Muhammad led his disciples uh, in conquering by the sword. And that is not a matter of bias. That is not a matter of prejudice. That's a matter of Islamic history and Islamic fact. And so um, endemic, intrinsic uh, to the uh, Muslim history, Islamic history, uh, is this concept of jihad, is this concept of expansionism. Now, uh, are there Muslims uh, who have redefined jihad as that internal struggle of their faith, etc., etc.? Of course there are. Uh, There are thoroughly modern... Uh, reform-minded Muslims who do not interpret the Quran that way, and I'll, I'll tell you what, Craig. You know, when I when I when I wrote this new book, uh, and of course you you've been saying the title, "No, We Can't." You know, it's not exactly the most pleasant, encouraging <laughs> uh, title for a book. But I have had several Muslim friends. I, I had a conversation last week with a professor. Uh, a muslim professor at a major american university i won't name the university but if i did uh, everyone in america would know this university and the the muslim professor to me came and said thank you so much uh for speaking out on these issues because when the west is too pc when we're too politically correct to call out uh the reality of the portion of the Islamic world that is moving in extremism then it makes it that more difficult for reform-minded Muslims uh, to see their faith uh, advance into new levels of interpretation. So why uh, is it more difficult? Because I believe um, much, if not most, of Islamic history has been expansion by the sword.
1: Well, that brings to us to an interesting juncture here, then, because that would suggest that, you know, whereas Judaism tends to kind of keep to itself, uh, Roman Catholicism uh, perhaps less so, though there certainly are evangelistic components to, to it, as well as Protestantism, to be sure. Uh, but nevertheless, it's done in a, in a loving fashion. This is not an attempt toward a world domination, but rather spreading the word throughout the world that people might voluntarily recognize their free will and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That said, you're suggesting that the the paradigm under which Islam typically spreads is is not through gentle persuasion but um, domination by the sword. And we certainly see uh, some evidence of that uh, repeated throughout history. And I would suppose in that regard then, it can potentially, from that world domination viewpoint, be as dangerous as Hirohito, Hitler, or Mussolini.
2: Well, now let's be careful to remember this. Christianity had its own season of expansionism by the sword. When we look back at the Crusades, etc., etc., but the fact of the matter is that Christianity... Uh, went through the metamorphosis of laying aside that
1: kind of thinking. Alright, but weren't also to, to be correct here, and, and and you're the historian, not me, but even the Crusades, as much as Christianity, deservedly so, gets a black eye for that, wasn't that in response to a lot of the spread of Islam that we saw throughout Europe? I'm thinking of places like Spain, etc.
2: You absolutely are historically correct in that fact, and that's a point that uh, many folks need to remember, the Crusades all too often were a response to Muslim aggression. Nevertheless, uh, we can look at um, things that happened in our own nation, forceful conversions uh, by Europeans, etc. Oh, absolutely. And again,
1: and I'm, I'm not, I'm that not making... An,
2: yeah, there was an expansionist period in Christianity that involved uh, physical exertion. And what happened? Christianity reinterpreted itself and understood, as modernity came, uh, that this was not the way to engage in religious dialogue. Islam needs to have that internal uh, dialogue within itself, and until it does, it remains, in my opinion... The greatest threat to the future of this planet, not only for Christians and Jews and Hindus, but for moderate Muslims uh, who simply want to live their life in peace, uh, but are all too often the victims of radical Islamic violence.
1: We in the West, again, coming from that paradigm of pluralism, will typically take the approach that we want to work toward coexistence, that uh, we will agree to disagree and kind of move on. Does this become problematic, Robert? You made reference to this in the, the previous segment where we see the push toward Islamic Sharia law. Yeah. and where we see uh, under under Judaism and Christianity I and mean, British Common Law or, or natural law derived ultimately from biblical law, uh, we see that certainly is kind of the 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 the, um, the foundation upon which law here was established in the United States, and something I think folks here in America, whether a Jew or Gentile, whether uh, you know perhaps an atheist or a humanist, would would suggest that you know for the most part we're okay with. Uh, With the laws that we have in our country here today, you know, even if we don't necessarily agree with the Bible from which many of them were derived, and yet that paradigm juxtaposed against Islamic Sharia law, does that become then more of this myth of coexistence? Look, uh,
2: let me give you, let me take a moment and give you a classic example of what I'm talking about, because what we're dealing with here, Craig, is that we have an America through the public education system, been so schooled in the concept of multiculturalism. And all of a sudden, multiculturalism has become this great American value uh, to the point that we're unwilling to say that one culture uh, may be better than another. And that's just ludicrous. Uh, There are some cultures that are horrible cultures. They have horrible practices, and they need to be reformed, and they need to be changed. Let me give you a quick example. Recently, in an Ivy League school here in the Northeast, uh, due to pressure from the Muslim student population, the public gymnasium on the Ivy League school campus uh, entered into a period of segregation where, for a certain period of the day, only the women were allowed into the gymnasium, into the pool... Uh, and then for another period of the day the men would be allowed into the gymnasium into the pool and this was all done to accommodate the muslim student population to the inconvenience of all of the other students, from all of the other, uh, you know, backgrounds who had paid their tuition, who had paid their student fees, but were now inconvenienced in not being able to use the gymnasium facilities, etc., during these hours because of this segregation. Now, could you imagine, just imagine for a moment, that any of the great Christian colleges across the nation, Liberty University or Biola or or, or Oral Roberts University or whatever, that they had segregated uh, the sexes during a portion of the day? Can, can you imagine? I mean, it would be CNN. There would be commentary that here we are, uh, the, the, the right-wing evangelical Christians are dragging back women's rights and, you know, segregating the sexes, etc. Well, no, none of that outcry happened. Why? Because this first nod to Sharia law was couched under the term of, well, that's their culture. And so we want to respect their culture. Now, let me give you a second example, and this goes to the second portion of the book, which deals with militant humanism. My aunt is a guidance counselor at a public school here in New York. And her granddaughter, a year or two ago for Christmas, gave her a little poinsettia plant. And my aunt brought the poinsettia plant in and set it on her desk at the high school where she's a guidance counselor. And don't you know, Craig, that by the end of the day, the administration had come over to her and said, I'm sorry, you'll need to take that plant home. That's a violation of the separation of church and
1: state. (laughs) I'm looking for the line in the Constitution that says thou shalt not bring poinsettia plants to school (laughs) for fear you may offend someone.
2: This is where we have descended to in this country. That we will, we will segregate uh, men and women in a public gymnasium forum uh, and, and, and just kowtow to that under the uh, guise that we don't want to offend Islamic culture. But we're terrified of a poinsettia plant that comes from the Christian tradition.
1: Let's pause on that point. And, uh, Robert, I'm going to ask you to linger for a couple of extra minutes here. There's so much more to discuss. I particularly want to talk about, then, the clashing of these two worldviews and how problematic all of that is and what it means when we say differing values. And to be sure, let me hasten to say that there are plenty of Muslims that live in America today that certainly value much of what we also value you that don't happen to be Muslim, meaning that they want to you know, live out their lives, earn a decent living, enjoy a home, someday retire, raise their children, have families, all of these things. They, they, they certainly value all of that. Where is there then this great departure that suggests, even by the title of Robert's new book, no, we can't, the myth of coexistence? We'll talk more about this as Lifeline continues. And now, back to
0: Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back to the conversation, Robert Stern. We're talking about his new book, No We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. Let's talk about these differing values for a moment, because at the core, when we talk about differing worldviews or or differing world values, maybe this will give us a, a better understanding of why you have drawn the conclusion that this idea of coexistence is a myth.
2: Well, absolutely. You know, we have within the, the classic Judeo-Christian worldview, Craig, um, at the end of the day, we have a culture that values life. We have a culture that absolutely values life and sees life as sacred and sees all human life as an expression uh, of the image of God. Each, each, each human being is created in the image of God and is endowed then with dignity, with purpose, with value. Uh, when you look at these other two worldviews, when you look, let's for, look for a moment at militant secularism. Uh, we're not talking about your basic agnostic down the street. I'm talking about those who are uh, really committed in their in their militant uh, atheist worldview. Uh, you know, Bill Maher comes to mind uh, on HBO. Uh, some of these folks that are really radical in their in their belief system. Well, if you're in an ultra materialistic worldview. And the fact of the matter is, uh, human life has no value uh, other other than uh, for its own pleasure. Um, You know, in a materialistic universe where your last breath is what it's all about, um, why should we care for our elderly? Uh, Why shouldn't euthanasia be an option? Uh, Why do we worry about abortion? Uh, There's an overall devaluing of life and a sterilization that comes Um, to the process. Well, you say, Robert, but that's not the case with Islam. They believe in a creator. Well, they do believe in a creator, but um, many, many times around the world, this chant, this mantra is heard, which is uh, that Islam uh, loves death uh, more than we, the West, love life. Uh, Let me just tell you a story. I... I do a lot of work in uh, Israel. I go back and forth on a consistent basis to Israel and have for 20 years. So it gives me a very unique perspective on these situations. There is, uh, right now, within the leadership of the Palestinians, uh, a woman who was recently elected to the Palestinian parliament. Uh, She has five sons. Uh, When her fourth son um, uh, became the fourth martyr of her five sons. In other words, son number one blew himself up. Son number two blew himself up. Son number three blew himself up. And then son number four blew himself up. Uh, the woman got on television and said, uh, I'm just overjoyed, and I hope that my fifth son follows in the path of his brothers and becomes shahada, becomes a suicide bomber. And so... Uh, the community there promptly elected her to the parliament. And these are the people, the kind of people, uh, that the Israelis are having to negotiate with. we were dealing with a society within radicalized Islam, and I'm going to just keep hammering at home, we're talking about the radicalized portion of Islam, but they are more committed uh, to a culture of death, a culture of jihad, Uh, then the West is committed to a culture of life. And so we really do have uh, serious, serious trouble on our hands. And it is time for those of us who live in the West, if we have any concern for the kind of world that we're going to leave to our children and grandchildren, we've got to wake up to what's happening in our generation. All right.
1: Now, you're making some clear distinctions here, and I want to underscore this, because we look historically, for example, at, at what I'll call secular Islamic society. Uh, That might contain, for example, what we saw for 30-something years in Egypt. Uh, I'm not suggesting or giving a nod in any direction of favoritism toward Hosni Mubarak at any level whatsoever, but largely the Mubarak regime was a secular society. They kind of left people alone. For the most part, Coptan Christians could kind of coexist, albeit kind of quietly in the background, but they were generally left alone. Mubarak now out of the Picture We begin to see the rise of Sharia law and, most importantly, the beginnings of the domination potentially, of the Muslim Brotherhood. All of a sudden, Coptic Christians are being attacked and the churches are being set afire. And all of a sudden now, a very hostile environment is being created for them. We've seen that also in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where in recent years, the Christian populations in those countries are now a shadow of what they once were.
2: Well, I've... I've just heard the other day that the last Christian church in Afghanistan has closed. Uh, let, let's use an even more stark example, Craig. Let's use Turkey. I mean, Turkey for years was the classic example of a modern secular Islamic state. Uh, the founder of modern Turkey, Ataturk, was absolutely adamant that it was to be, uh, you know, um, kept as a secular state uh, with Islamic traditions. Well, what has happened here over just the past several years? Uh, As elections have gone on in Turkey, even though they were being considered for membership into the European Union, Turkey has moved farther and farther and farther to the right into levels, more and more levels, of Islamic fundamentalism. So even though it's not a convenient truth, even though it's an uncomfortable truth, the fact of the matter is, in much, if not most, of the Arab Muslim world, the trend is toward a more strict and fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. Uh, unfortunately, we have very few examples where things are trending toward possibilities that could be more peaceful, which would then lead toward coexistence.
1: As this trend is taking place, we're talking about a religion, Islam, that's been around since the 700s. Why, all of a sudden, 1,300, 1,400 years later, is it becoming so radical? A timeout will answer that question. Robert Stearns, our guest, to look at No, We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. Back with more in a moment.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're continuing our visit here with Robert Stearns. The book, No We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence let's talk about what has shifted here since we've already acknowledged that there have been seasons when there's been uh, much to do about the spread of Islam by means of force and then a long quiet period here and now really since the uh, the 1980s into the 1990s a radical spread of Islam uh, to the point of a sword as you point out what has what has been the the genesis behind this shift
2: well first of all i, I I'm not sure Sure that the shift is that it's so much a shift as, as it is so much uh, that we live in a world with increased awareness, increased media. Uh, you know, you can go through history and see the thread of violence throughout Islam's history. However, there are a couple unique things that I think should be brought um, brought to people's attention. Number one, uh, we certainly see. That the the rise of the industrial revolution and the West's um, absolute addiction to oil has caused just massive amounts of funding, uh, massive amounts of wealth, unprecedented wealth uh, to flow into uh, oil-rich countries like Saudi Arabia and others, where Wahhabi Islam, uh, which is the most extreme form of Islam, uh, is practiced and 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 has grown. So. Number one, I think there's a funding source um, that is far more extensive than was present for much of Islamic history. And that
1: support of Wahhabism is largely both in the Middle East and globally coming from Saudi Arabia, is it not? Absolutely, which somehow,
2: somehow continues to purport to be our ally.
1: So our biggest, our biggest oil trading partner and our so-called ally in the region mm-hmm. is also the biggest exporter of the most extreme version of Islam, Wahhabism.
2: And what you have is exactly what you talked about earlier in Egypt, etc. Uh, you have a small ruling family um, that basically only can stay in power by buying off and and staying in the good graces of these Wahhabi clerics, these these extremist clerics, and so, you know, I, I think of the quote of 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 Winston Churchill uh, after the days of Neville Chamberlain, when Neville Chamberlain came back from Hitler, and Chamberlain said that he had negotiated peace, uh, and he said we have peace in our time, and. Um, uh, Winston Churchill stood up and said, uh, he said appeasement, appeasement is when you feed your friends to the crocodiles first in hopes that the crocodiles are going to eat you last. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're eventually going to have the problem of the crocodile. Uh, you may just kick it down the road a little longer, but it's, it, the problem is not going away. The second reality uh, that I believe is accelerating this issue is the modern state of Israel. The modern state of Israel coming into existence in 1948, and then more fully in 1967 with the reunification of Jerusalem, uh, this poses massive theological uh, angst and complication for Islam. Um, Because this does not fit into Islamic theology. That there would be a Jewish state in the Middle East, um, that there would be a strong, vibrant uh, Jewish presence in what has been historically, uh, in recent time, under Muslim control. This provokes um, tremendous uh, frustration within the heart of global Islam. So I think these are a few of the reasons... Uh, why we see this issue growing exponentially.
1: All right. So, with that thought in mind, unless Israel decides to uh, toss in the proverbial towel and just, you know, shut down for business, which I don't think is going to happen anytime mm-hmm. soon, and I've had Benjamin Netanyahu as a guest on this program on multiple occasions, I know he's pretty steadfast, steadfast about Israel hanging around for at least a while. Uh, then, what is this By the suggesting? Way, scripture, scripture agrees with him. Absolutely, though. So, so that said, then we're looking at what just a continued escalation of this, uh, you know, n- not only obviously. Uh, uh, sort of a firebrand going on there with uh, Jerusalem and Israel and the Middle East, but then too the continued clashing of these two uh, worldviews or two kingdoms.
2: Well, Scripture is pretty clear, and and I am not um, I am not one who bangs the eschatological drum. Uh, I'm not one of these who who you know. I think we have to be wary of setting dates for the return of the Lord and all of these
1: issues. Now, don't go picking on Harold Camping.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I tell you, uh, when we read Scripture, uh, I'm telling you, Craig, reading Scripture is like listening to the evening news. I mean, you read scriptures that say that in the last days, Jerusalem will be a cup of reeling, a cup of controversy that all the nations will drink. Well, well, we see it happening every day at the United Nations. Um, uh, We really are pressing into unprecedented times. So what do we do? What do we do? Number one. We, as Bible-believing Christians, must come into alignment with God's heart for the city of Jerusalem, God's heart for the Jewish people and the state of Israel. I absolutely believe that that is a responsibility incumbent upon us, not only as Christians, uh, but also as Americans. We must begin to educate ourselves and to stand with the Jewish people, and the state of Israel. Number two, uh, God loves Muslims. He's, he's just crazy about them. He loves them. He wants to see them blessed and set free from a spirit of violence. We need to pray that God's love will begin to just sweep across the Muslim world. We need to pray for a raising up of missionaries uh, of courage. You know, a uh, hundred years ago we had missionaries who would just boldly go into the dark places of the world, knowing that they would pay with their very lives for the spread of the gospel. We need to pray for that kind of zeal to rebaptize a new generation of Christian missionaries and that we would see the Muslim world absolutely one with the love of Christ. And number three, uh, we need to stand firm over and over and over again in Scripture. We are given the injunction to stand firm in our faith, to stand, to stand steadfast and unmovable. It, it is my opinion, and I've been in this thing a long time, uh, it is my opinion that the days and years ahead uh, are going to be very, very unstable, very, very difficult, but also very, very glorious. I believe that those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ with whole hearts, with wholehearted devotion, uh, that we're going to see things happen that we haven't seen since the book of Acts I believe there's a great blessing coming on the church uh, but it's going to be happening against the backdrop of extraordinarily difficult times
1: Wow, and and certainly uh, we're seeing a lot of that evidenced in the headline news and and supported ultimately from a prophetic standpoint in Scripture. Robert Stearns, thanks so much for the time today. A look at No We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. The new book published by Chosen, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com.